0: Hello, and welcome back to your favorite podcast, Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. I'm Stephanie Brimhall, Education Manager at the Kansas City Symphony.
1: I'm Mike Gordon, Principal Flute of the Kansas City Symphony. And I'm Jason Sieber, the Associate Conductor.
0: Throughout our first 12 episodes here, we've been fortunate to talk to many incredible guests, from some of our symphony musicians and staff, to key leaders in music and in the arts in the Kansas City community and beyond, to even heroes of all types— but we have never been lucky enough to sit down with a Pulitzer Prize winner. That changes today.
1: It sure does, Stephanie. So I had a good friend in Louisville, Kentucky. We're still good friends, but we were colleagues together with the Louisville Orchestra, Rob Simons. And Rob is now with the Rochester Philharmonic. Uh, and he's always on the cutting edge of knowing like the best of the best young and upcoming composers. So about five or six years ago, I asked Rob... Who should I be listening to? What, what composers are out there that are really fascinating? And he said, top of the list, without a doubt, Caroline Shaw. So I did some digging. I started listening. And ever since that day, I've been completely mesmerized and hooked on her amazing music. And it's such a cool honor to have her here today as our guest on Beethoven walks into a bar. She's such a versatile artist. She's a singer. She's a violinist. She's a composer, a producer. It's really amazing all the great things that Caroline's doing for the world of music.
2: I am fortunate to be able to say I knew Caroline when uh, she and I were actually uh, the same year of undergrad uh, at Rice University. And and uh, I actually remember first meeting Caroline, and we'll have to ask her if she remembers this story too. This has actually nothing to do with music, but I think it's funny. So so at Rice University, <laughs> they have this uh, rather elaborate Orientation week, uh, which involves all kinds of getting to know you activities, and and one of them they sort of build in a misleading way. They were Rice University courses in Houston, Texas, uh, and this is you know late August, early September, and it was solid hundred five degrees every day from the crack of dawn. And they said, uh, oh, well you can sign up to go on this trip out to Galveston, which is which is down on the water. And I thought, oh, that'd be great. And it turned out Caroline signed up for the same trip. And we got on, as I recall, kind of a you know, old yellow school bus and truck down to Galveston, which is about oh, an hour away from, from downtown Houston where Rice is. And it turned out we were not just going for a beach day. We were doing a community service project and we <laughs> were planting Uh, reed plants in the marshland to help preserve the marshland and it was like a hundred and however many degrees the sun is just screaming there's no shade anywhere and we're in this like knee deep muddy brackish nasty hot water having to bend over and put (laughs) our arms you know two or three feet down in the water and plant these reed plants, like, every two or three feet for, like, a mile. And I remember being out there uh, with Caroline doing that, and we all got sunburned and miserable, and we just (laughs) thought this was the dumbest idea ever. (laughs) <laughs> and that's how I got to know Caroline. So it is an unbelievable delight uh,
1: to see you again here all these years later. Wow. That is that is a crazy good story. Oboe players and bassoon players everywhere, I'm sure, are grateful for planting all those reed plants. I'm oh, sure they're very, yeah. oh, wow. very, very wow. thankful that they have all the cane they need for their reeds now. But long before... Uh, all of this, Caroline, uh well, first of all, let's welcome Caroline Shaw to the show. We're so glad to have you with us today. Thank you for joining us, Caroline.
3: Oh, thanks for asking me. I'm glad to be here. And I got to say, Mike, I you know I had not thought about that. It's I had not I had not re- You started telling the story I was like I don't remember any part of this. And then you mentioned the reeds and the mud and the water. I was like, oh, (laughs) I remember. You're welcome. I think you also got really quite sunburned.
2: Oh, very much. (laughs) Yeah, okay.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that was fun. Well, (laughs) long before you were in the swamplands of Galveston, uh, as a kid growing up, I'm sure that you had many interests, as you do now as a musician, um, playing violin, singing, composing, I'm sure, from an early age. Tell us a little bit about how your path began as a musician and especially as a composer, Caroline?
3: Sure. I I grew up in eastern North Carolina, which um, also has a lot of swampland and reeds and different wetlands. Um, And I grew up playing Suzuki violin and my mom was my first teacher and then I studied for basically age five until I went to college with Joanne Bath. And I always um, kind of, I really fell in love with music deeply when I started playing chamber music when I was a teenager and um, became really serious about the violin, and that was what I kind of thought I was going to do. And um, I wrote a little bit of music when I was younger, kind of, you know, you heard stories of the composers and how they wrote music down, so I kind of tried to figure it out, and it wasn't very good, but it was fun to try. Um, And then I ended up going to Rice to study with Kathy Winkler, and um, I was writing a little bit of music then, but was kind of really planning on either playing in an orchestra or playing at a string quartet. Um, and the composing kind of trickled back into my life um, a little bit after that.
1: Now, I mentioned that you're very versatile with all these amazing talents, and, and you're good at all of them. I mean, it's one thing to be you know, versatile and have all these skills, but I know you are an incredible singer. You are, I've never heard you play violin, but you're obviously an incredible violinist if you premiered your piece Low with the Cincinnati Symphony, correct? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so you're obviously a really good violinist, but, you know, one of the things I think as artists, no matter what we do, uh, especially composers, I feel like, that people tend to label people. Oh, that composer is a minimalist, or that composer is a... um neoclassicist. How would you describe your music and are you someone that tries to avoid labels since you are so versatile?
3: Mm. Um, Yeah, I think in terms of my music, my first thought was like, oh, I'm a a music geek. I'm like a music kid who grew up loving music and I just started to want to make it myself and I I don't know what sort of category it fits into. Sometimes it's um, classical music fan fiction where you take an idea and you spin it to some other place. Um, but I, tr- yeah, I try to avoid, you know, being one particular thing. And I, I, um, I like to write for a lot of different kinds of musicians and I've worked with a lot of different kinds of musicians Sometimes in pop and hip hop. Sometimes it's, um, chamber music, orchestral songs. Um, so I try to do a lot of, you know, all the different things that I love about music, writing music was really originally a way for me to kind of, l- figure out more about music. And I think it's, uh, you know, at it's best on my best days. That's really why I still, I still write music.
2: So, so talk about that a little bit more, actually. Um, because, you know, I, I remember, you know, when we were in school together. I actually, I don't think I was aware even that you were writing much music. I knew you sang a bit and obviously played the violin. And you are and were a terrific uh, violinist. And and I remember your love of chamber music, but how did, so how did writing for you enrich that? Because I, I you know, I've often yeah. wished that I had learned to do that more uh, because it's so, it's so creative. And I mean, it's not that I couldn't now, I suppose I could, especially now where I you have all this definitely time, could. but yeah. Um, <laughs> But I haven't, anyway, and and you know I wish that uh, I had that creative outlet a little bit sometimes because the only thing I can do is play other people's music.
3: But you can do that incredibly well, Mike. I remember. <laughs> oh <my goodness>.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that is the gig. That's what pays the bills. But
3: <laughs> yeah, you were amazing from day one. I remember. Um, you know, I think I a I, I actually I I think that everyone. Is um, is incredibly deeply creative. We just sort of end up focusing on different things, but it's um, uh, you know I think there are a lot of musicians who, um, if you know, kind of given a certain environment or opportunity, would would really make something interesting. And that was really one of the reasons I started writing was um, because I, I I just wanted to try something out. And then I you know I I think in college I wrote pretty secretly. I wrote a little tiny bit for my quartet to play and what I loved about it was that it actually helped me listen so much better in rehearsal like I have a very distinct memory of of one like one night working on this string quartet I was trying to figure out and having really fun with it like it's kind of like this puzzle or game and then the next day in orchestra rehearsal we were practicing um Hindemith's Matisse der Mahler do you remember that? cycle. Yeah. I love that piece, but I listened so much more deeply to the piece and to the rehearsal and to the other players after having written some music the night before. So it's just kind of like a different way of engaging with it. And then I mostly started writing for friends and people that I knew. And like I wrote a piece for my recital and uh, in for my master's recital, partially just to have something new to play. And it Kind of start started like that, and now I, I write for people that I sometimes don't know. You know, I th-
0: I think that's interesting too. I mean, just talking about especially rice being such a, I feel like a nurturing place for you to be able to, you know, go and and learn about yourself and your interests. Because I I went in wanting to be a, a clarinetist like that. I wanted mm-hmm. to be an orchestral clarinetist. That's what I wanted to be. I'm um, but kind of being there and being around people, and now I, I do something totally different. Um, but I don't think that I would be doing what I do without all of those personalities and all of those people and kind of being around all of those different artists with various talents and explorations and stuff. I mean, Jason, when you went to school, you went did you studied violin first, right?
1: Yeah, I, uh, undergrad, I did violin performance and music education because I wanted to be a teacher. And that's what I did for the first several years of my career
0: in high school. It's just really interesting like where those paths take you and kind of how you how you can come to be where you are i mean would you have if 18 year old caroline at showing up at the shepherd school you know after (laughs) straight off the bus after your galveston trip (laughs) would you would you have said then yeah um you know i'm gonna one day be this composer with a pulitzer prize and having all of these engagements with various artists and orchestras and things like that was that something that you would have even predicted
3: Oh no, little eighteen-year-old Caroline! I wish I could just talk to her and say, like, it's gonna be okay. You don't have to worry. <laughs> just stop crying and all of your lessons. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, you come. I think a lot of people come into school. You're you come with one set of experiences, and then you're um, you become exposed to all these different people, different kinds of musicians and students and artists and. Um, and And sort of find new pathways for yourself. But I think another nice thing about rice was that you you know there was a incredibly high uh, high focus on your particular discipline and your instrument. I mean, I think violin was one hundred percent my focus the whole time, but you you saw other doorways and other windows, and you say, like, you know what's what's behind door number four? What if I opened that for a second? Mm-hmm. yeah,
2: so i'd I'd love to get you to talk a little bit now about uh about room full of teeth because um i think it's something you got involved with if my memory is right it wouldn't be that long after after school right um but mm-hmm. it's to, I, you'll have to describe it for yourself because to to call it a a group of singers does not exactly do it justice i mean they you guys do do so much stuff so talk talk about that a little bit how you got involved and and what that group is and how it inspired you because it was, you know, it was that piece, uh, the, the partita, right. That really, that was, that was the piece, you know, you won the prize for that absolutely, put you on the map, as they say, uh, (laughs) if you weren't there already.
3: Um, Yeah, I was definitely not on the map. I don't know if I am now at all, but it was... (laughs) You are. You're on my map. (laughs)
1: You are definitely on the map, Caroline.
3: (laughs) Well, Roomful of Teeth is a group um, of eight singers that was founded by Brad Wells, who's the choral director at Williams College. And Brad had had this idea, I think, for a decade of, um, you know gathering class- singers were classically trained and then talking about different ways of using our voice and working with um, singers from many different traditions around the world around the country people who use their voice in ways other than traditional bel canto singing which is the sort of western style and then within sort of in the context of having these different conversations we'll, we'll work with someone for, for one or two weeks um, you know talking about what what um, what is possible with our own voices and um, writing new music that um, just pushes the voice a little bit beyond um, where it had been, but also always thinking about ways of being expressive. So not necessarily in the sort of mid-20th century tradition of modernist music This is what, what can you do with this instrument? But what is a way that feels expressive? And so I've joined the group um, I just auditioned as a singer in 2009. I didn't know what it was. It didn't exist yet. It was supposed to be just a workshop, and I still think of it as actually, actually this like weird workshop. We suddenly became more known and perform perform publicly now. But um, anyway, I got. We spent three weeks together, and the director said, "If anyone, you know, any of the singers want to try writing music for the group, you know, feel free. We can do." short things at the end of the concert. We'd already commissioned two composers to write for us. Um, and I thought, oh, this would be fun. I've never written something like that. Let me try something. And that became Passacaglia, which is the fourth movement of Partita Frey Voices, which ended up later winning that big, big prize. Um, so it was kind of a, it was just an experimental thing in the beginning. And, um, and now we've, we've, Performed hundreds of times. Um, and uh, I also didn't identify as a singer really, uh, but mm-hmm. now I've done quite a bit more. A
0: So you joined the group as you were one of the original members then. Yes. Yeah. I mean as as it was come together. Um mm-hmm. I'm curious where the where the group's name came from. I love it. Mm-hmm.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I think that Brad was wanting to find something that is um you know catches the ear, has a certain mm-hmm. sound and ring to it, doesn't sound like a a normal choir name which usually usually sort of Italian or Latin. And he was really looking to the organization bang on a can. Um, uh-huh. Which has a really fun name. rolls off the tongue. But the real concept behind it is that the um, when you sing, you're making this chamber in your mouth, this room that changes the sound. It's sort of a chamber music. So it's a room full of teeth. Mm-hmm. And also the tooth, when you sing, you know the music it, it, the sound leaves your mouth and it's ephemeral and it disappears as soon as it's you've uttered the note. But the tooth is the last. The hardest substance of the body it's the last thing to decay so this mix of the ephemeral and the permanent
1: very cool. cool it's cool yeah well um talk a little bit about being able being able to write for these cutting edge groups like alarm will sound or a far cry room full of teeth do you feel like there are no limits as opposed to writing for let's say an orchestra you've written a lot of orchestra pieces in the last three or four or five years especially mm-hmm. Um, But I think a lot of your earlier writing really was for chamber groups and choral groups, etc. Do you feel, especially the first times you got the chance to work with some of these groups, because now you've established great relationship with them. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that you had no rules, no limits, as opposed to a typical orchestral commission, which is usually we need a 10 minute overture, make it exciting, it's going to open our season?
3: I mean, limits are—they um, can be really good things. I think restrictions actually really help the creative process in a way. You have something to push against. So, um, you know, I welcome—I I welcome those. It's certainly you have a lot—you have a some different freedoms in writing for a smaller group. I often think about notation. You can, you know, be a little bit less clear, a little bit more open about something. Um, like if I'm writing for a string quartet, especially if I know them, I'll might, I might—I might put some kind of funny little aside so i think if there's one piece that i have that says like with some side eye you know it's like i would never really write that for an orchestra player because you be like, should we would love that you know, Like it's like a little sass you know or like give it a little bit <laughs> and um so i'm a little maybe a little little more bold with smaller groups with orchestra the thing the biggest thing um uh, for me as a composer is that you have to really turn in the piece on time <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know it's uh, there's some really hard
0: deadlines and those um, orchestra library those librarians do not play yeah they do they not do play I respect
3: it and it is <laughs> important but I am basically late on every other piece but for orchestra I have to be on time
0: <laughs> you know
3: you talk about
0: um, you know writing music for people you know or even um, if it's not somebody that you know but you I, I read that you like to get to know them before you start writing mm-hmm. something so you can you can add a bit of of that and it, it, reading that made me think you know a, a lot of the music we play and probably most of the music that orchestras uh, orchestras play for sure mm-hmm. was likely written for somebody at some point i mean you know it, it, a lot of it was written for a specific group of people but what i think is amazing about living composers is that we um we're getting to hear them and also be we are hearing them performed by the group that they were written for. And I think that mm-hmm. brings out a really cool element that you, you don't get necessarily from playing music by Mozart or Beethoven, you know, cause it's very, very personal.
3: Yeah. I think that, I think you really, yeah, hit, hit it. Um, right there. It's there's something about writing for people that, you know, and it's the musicians that, you know, but also the audience that, you know, and mm-hmm. the place that, you know, so I'm always thinking, um, I usually am just writing for that first performance. Even if something's going to be performed later, that's great. But I don't, I'm not really thinking that way. I'm thinking about what else is on the program? Like, what are people listening to? Um, what, you know, what kind of venue do they walk into? Who is, if I know the orchestra, I'll go through and I'll figure out who is, who in here do I know? And there's something about thinking about them while I'm writing. Um and also I think about just being, you know, being an orchestra musician myself, what does it feel like to play something? What does it feel like to have 40 bars rest? What does it feel like to hold a whole note? <laughs> you know, I, and it—it. It, I think music, I like to think that I make music really for people to do something in a room together. Um, it's not really just about the end product of what sounds fancy, or what sounds cool, but actually you have this group of people, It's if it's four in a string quartet or if it's 50, um to do something together and communicate together. So the more personal it is for me, just the more um, important it is in my life Mm -hmm. and the more, uh, the more I enjoy writing it. Can you, can can we make a deal with each other
0: that if you ever write a piece where Mike Gordon is playing the flute, can you incorporate some kind of like sunburn, (laughs) Galveston Beach reference.
3: <laughs> just the painful. sunburn theme. What would that sound like, Mike? What what does sunburn... This is the exact thing I think about uh, when I'm writing. What does sunburn sound like on a flute? <laughs> it would oh sizzle God. somehow. I
1: don't know. <laughs> a lot of flutter tongue. Definitely a lot yeah. of flutter tongue. You could just write a la Gal- maybe, Galveston above it. Maybe it, it.
2: <laughs> could be more interpretive. Maybe, maybe I just get up from my chair and I come to the front of the stage and I stick a reed plant uh into the crowd or something like that i don't know oh boy i <laughs> oh like boy. This. oh boy this I is like where the this. Podcast it's gonna get, goes it's gonna get off performance the rails. performance art i <laughs> no, love but it i i i actually i tremendously look forward to the day uh that i get to play some of your orchestral music but i think you know some of the most uh enjoyable, experiences in my career have been just what you're saying interacting with a composer because from the from the performer's side you know we don't get to talk to beethoven or mozart or brahms or, you know but we can we can we can talk to a, a living composer obviously that's there and especially when they're writing a new piece uh, you know often there's a composer present just for a performance of a piece that's been played many times but when it's a new piece and there's actually a collaboration going on you know it's kind of almost the last phase of composition i think um that that interaction sometimes the piece actually changes as as a result of that or or evolves and mm-hmm. I can think of so many situations in my life uh, where that's happened where I've gotten to you know talk to someone who's either a friend or somebody a composer I'm meeting for the first time and just have that that interaction and know that. Um, know that they're thinking about you know the experience of performing and also so that mm-hmm. i can play their piece more in the way that they imagine it you know there's so much information that's not on the page no matter mm-hmm. who the composer is having that opportunity to know that uh, what i'm interpreting is exactly how they're imagining it in their head is really really meaningful and and fun so i i love that
3: and as a composer i actually really love when um, a performer has a very particular idea. It's like, as an idea of how they would want to do something. And I think every composer is a little bit different. Some have maybe more uh, information to prescribe about it. But if someone, like, if you said, oh, I really wish I could sort of phrase it this way, or what if I did articulate it that way? I think this would be really cool. I'd be like, yeah, go for it. That's great. Um, yeah. Unless there was something, you know, unless, unless it was, it was bad. a terrible idea. Unless it was a terrible <laughs> idea.
2: And I think of that so much, you know, even with, with, um, you know, past composers, you uh, even if they're not, you know, there in the room or even living anymore, it's still a collaboration. Every time we play a piece, yeah. but we can't actually have a conversation. So when you can actually have a conversation, it makes it so much better.
3: I also think there's no one, there's just no one right way. And if you find something that is that is convincing and exciting to you, that's that's every composer's dream. But it is it is really mm. fun to be in the room. The really frustrating thing though is if I don't have. I mean I think in orchestras time is of the essence and time is money, so you don't have time to t- discuss the minute details, but you can find some like space in the wings after rehearsal to kind of check in on something and that's that's really where the joy is
2: yeah i I have to share um one of my favorite things that happens, and, and Michael will have to forgive me for embarrassing him in this way, but we do have a composer. Like you say, we're so short on time sometimes, and maybe something's not quite working exactly the way it needs to with balances or whatever, and you know, he'll turn around to the composer sitting out in the hall and say, is this too loud? Do we really have to make this crescendo here because I can't hear the whatever? And before the answer comes, he turns around and says, you know, psst, just play, little; it'll work better. Just, yeah, it's fine. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it is it is all about saving time sometimes but um <laughs> caroline you've written some really incredible works in the last several years for orchestra uh, on track low we mentioned the violin work with uh with orchestra with the with that you premiered with the Cincinnati Symphony. You wrote an awesome piano concerto called Watermark that was premiered or commissioned, excuse me, by the Seattle Symphony and the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra. You've had commissions by the Baltimore Symphony, the Philharmonia, the BBC, so many great orchestras. Right now, from my understanding, you are one of several composers that has been commissioned to write a short fanfare to be performed virtually by the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra. Tell us a little bit about that, because I think that's a super cool project.
3: Oh, yeah, it's a really cool project that they're doing. They're commissioned a lot of um, these short sort of one-minute fanfares. Um, and I'm going to be writing for uh, one of their violinists. And I have this idea of, you know, when you think of a fanfare, you always always think of trumpet brass, something that is heralding an idea, or, you, you know, the, the Copeland... Fanfare for the Common Man? Is that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And I thought, well, there's something, uh, a fanfare isn't necessarily something that uh, is um, loud and slow, but could be kind of quiet and intimate. So I'm going to write a piece for the Mm -hmm. violinist to hum and play at the same time. Um, but it's, cool. I think it's oh, wow. a really beautiful, beautiful project. I have not written the piece yet, so I will not tell you <laughs> anything else. <laughs>
1: oh, there you go, cool.
3: But that's all I got. And you're also,
1: you also have a commission uh, for the New York Philharmonic that's coming up in February of 2021. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Have you started working on that one?
3: Yeah, I've started the, the sort of concept work. That For me, the, there's a lot, there's a long process before writing a piece of just figuring out what it, what it is, how it's gonna be shaped, what it's about, how to approach it. Um, and then the writing of it um, comes much, much more quickly and much more easily. So this one is actually, it's going to be for Roomful of Teeth, the Eight Singers and the oh, New York cool. Philharmonic. So there's uh, naturally kind of a relationship to the Barrio Symphonia, which is another piece originally for swingle singers, eight singers and orchestra. Um, this certainly won't sound like that, but it's, it's a piece that I've sung with several orchestras and it's in my mind. But I want it to be about food <laughs> and oh, texture. Nice. Yes. Like food and texture, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a great chef, but I, a lot of us love those cooking shows. And I love hearing someone talk about the texture and how you combine certain ingredients and how you're, what the technique is to get something just this particular way. So um, I'm sort of growing this list of, of um, sh- you know, whether there's chefs or cooks or people who enjoy food in a particular way um, to just do interviews with them and, make something that is really about the love of texture because i think there's a real relationship between um cooking and writing music yeah you
0: know who you need to talk with please tell me talk with mike g
2: (laughs) oh mike g
0: (laughs) this guy is all about like meats and barbecue and don't let him don't let him play it down he is an amazing cook
2: is. You, you could have a movement called burnt ends. <laughs> burnt, oh, there you go. Oh, the
0: burnt ends. <laughs> yes. It could be a dual meaning with the sunburn, but also the Kansas oh, wow. City staple burnt
1: Layers. ends.
0: <laughs> <laughs> this is Being an there in name.
1: New York, please also talk to my favorite <laughs> chef, David Chang, who is, I think, oh, like yeah. the god of cooking. And actually a buddy of mine and I, shortly after Mamufuku Co. opened, it was it had only been open like six months we went and had the 10-course, you know, pre meal, and he was cooking because this is back before, like, he was huge, and so we got to hang out with him afterwards. We were the last reservation of the night, and I was oh asking him all these questions. So if I would have known you were working on this piece, this was, like, years ago. I would have tried to plant a seed, but you need to get <laughs> ask him some questions because I'm sure he can help out with this quite a bit. That's awesome.
0: Hey, I, okay, I'm going to ask a remedial question because I am not a composer at all but i know maybe there are people listening who kind of would appreciate the process a little bit but you're as a violinist you know so- somebody who's trained in violin and also a singer how do you transition that into being able to write for like piccolo or contrabassoon or like mm-hmm. instruments that i'm you, i'm i'm guessing you've not played yeah. um but but how do you go about that and and being able to be comfortable writing for Instruments that you, you
3: know, you don't necessarily know
0: much about.
3: Sure. I think it's, well, to go to go back to the food analogy, you sort of first find out everything you can about the ingredient. Maybe there's, there's the history of it, but there's also how it, you know, how it, how someone plays it. Um, what, it, what the range, the sort of basic things, the range, um, what comes naturally, what is more difficult, um, what its strengths are. I'm always interested in like, what's the, you know, why did the why did the orchestra develop this particular way? Why do we have this many flutes and this many clarinets and not 15 clarinets, but just mm-hmm. three or four. Um, and then I'm, I never, I'm never, I'm not a very, I'm a much more experimental writer for strings cause I know what they mm-hmm. can do. And I know what the line between comfort and difficulty, um, and then I'll sometimes I'll just talk to someone that I know who's who plays this. I might just write a little bit and I'll text them a screenshot of this of the bit of music and say, Hey, is this something that is a playable or could you do this? How long could you do this? Um, do you need a break? What's a way to do mm-hmm. this kind of effect but maybe in a more um, idiomatic way? And um, that's kind of the that's the process. Yeah,
1: Caroline, what do you hope people take away from a performance? Of your music, after they've heard one of your wonderful pieces, do you think about? You've talked a lot about the orchestra or the or the singers that you're writing for and and writing into the, what their uh, abilities are and what they're great at and and you know finding new sounds and new um, ways of expressing yourself. Mm-hmm. But when you're thinking of the audience, what what do you hope they walk away from a performance of one of your pieces with?
3: I mean, it depends on. That's a great question. It depends on the piece and the sort of ensemble in the audience. For me, I, when I'm writing, I'm thinking about the pace of conversation and I want to, you know, there's a, an element of communication and what that means can can be different in different parts of a piece or different kinds of pieces. But I enjoy, um, you know, conversation at a party where, where there's a back and forth and there's some kind of shared, shared references and then it pivots to something new that I didn't know before or you're talking about something and then you realize that, oh, this person has a different perspective or that story took a turn that I wasn't expecting or um, this makes me th- remember this other thing in a different way. I think memory is a really important part. Um, I, I want it to feel, you know, it's again, it's like food. I want it to be something that is both nourishing and also um, enjoyable and maybe challenging in a certain way that um, that just opens you up to listening to something more deeply um, and then I think of painting, where you want to construct, whether it's, you know, a, you, you construct a, a pattern of images or a pattern of things that guide the eye in a particular w- way. And um, mm. I want it to feel, uh, I want it to be something that I would want to listen to. <laughs> a, I
1: Always important.
3: Of, I write, you know, you end up sort of writing for yourself. I want, I want it to be something that... The, where the players or the singers are comfortable and, and are enjoying it and feel comfortable, you can I can sense if I'm going to see a band if they're enjoying it or not um, or if they're comfortable or not. So that's a big part of it. But ultimately, I think music is a way that it's like this exquisite, beautiful, powerful, almost religious way that humans have found to pass the time. And I want to make something that is um, as a way for us to pass the time together yeah. Some, some pieces I have are, you know, they might be more political, but there's um, yeah. that's also a way to, to have a conversation with each other. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I think your music achieves all those things you just mentioned. I think it's very engaging. I think it's very accessible. It's daring. It's thrilling. And um, I encourage all of our listeners to really listen to a lot of Caroline's music. We're going to make a few recommendations here. In a minute, but I have to ask you one more quick thing before we get to the question we ask all of our guests. (laughs) Um, And that is in your bio on your website, you mentioned several things that you love. And one of those things was. Otters, which is the animal otter, <laughs> which I think is cool, and Beethoven harp quartet. And I have a quick question about those two things, not related though. Mm-hmm. Uh, next year, Stephanie can tell you about this. We're doing an awesome family concert where we're going to the KC Zoo and we will have filmed lots of animals. And we're trying to pick orchestral music that wasn't written specifically for those animals, but that really helps show those animals' motions through music. And we're going to ah. show some footage of video for the kids of those animals at the zoo while we're actually playing a piece that's unrelated but is makes us think of that animal, especially their movement.
0: We and we so we oh, actually we did with the otters and I think did we settle on uh Ravel's Tombow? Um that Tombow?
1: Yeah. Really? Did is we? that a good piece? Should we but, pick that piece, Caroline? Or do you want to write us something brand new? <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever written music for otters since so no, you love them?
3: I've never written music for otters. I love that. I don't know that. I actually don't know Tombow very well. I don't know what that... But is it playful? That, I feel like when I think of otters, I think of these yeah. like incredibly playful, yeah. but also kind of fierce animals. Like, they've got yeah. both sides. Ooh. Yeah. I See, I watched a, a video just the other day of an
0: otter. It was... Clearly, somebody's pet somehow. You know, we're in this time right now where you just you're you're stuck at home. I'm like diving down the rabbit hole of like <laughs> one YouTube video after the other. Um, but it was this otter that was eating out of like a dog food bowl, like like pellets of dog food, just like with his hands, just like a little person, just like popping them in his mouth, just like popcorn. It was amazing.
1: I saw the same video actually. <laughs> You guys adorable. are spending way too much time it's on totally YouTube. It's totally adorable. <laughs> well, Caroline, think about writing a piece for otters. And if you do, we'll commission it. We'll pay you well. And we will put it on our zoo our zoo family concert next year. And I, I, I have to... I, I love the fact that you love the Beethoven harp quartet because that is one of my all-time favorite pieces of chamber music. I absolutely love it. And I think that the... Coda at the end of the first movement, where the first violinist is going nuts, yes, and the vi- the second violinist and the violist are playing these beautiful soaring lines and the melody, and the, the cellos still doing the harp pits. That to me, I think you know, every composer has like a moment in their writing where it's like, This is Beethoven. And I remember my violin teacher at Baldwin Wallace, uh, Julian Ross said that mm-hmm. to me, He said, Go listen to the harp because we were working on a Beethoven sonata for violin and piano. And he said, you must, and I knew it, but I didn't, had not like studied it. And I studied that coda and it completely changed the way I felt about Beethoven—is that why you love it, or what is it about that piece? That it's that—it's
3: exactly that moment. That's one of my favorite moments in all of music. Like I actually have a—I one student we listened to this together um, on Zoom the other day, and like when it gets to that moment, I, like my body does not can—I can't keep it from moving, and like it's, it's so fun. It's and you do feel like there are these moments with certain composers where the—that's like, the—that's the thing. It's not just. Intellect. It's not just the cool, intricate, you know, intricate motivic right. development. It is like this moment of raw energy that is. Um, yeah, mm. I love it, totally.
1: Nice, yeah. So everyone, check out Beethoven Harp Quartet as well. I'm, I'm the code of the first em-
0: one. embarrassed to say that I don't know it. So like, as soon as
3: we're done here, I'm doing
0: it. Well, I just made myself add it a to note. Your
1: YouTube list. I Add it to your YouTube We got to get to the okay. end. It's
3: the end of the first movement. you just got to make okay. it through, and then yes. it's the end. So good. Okay.
1: The whole piece is good, but the end of the first movement is magical. Got it. All right, well, we can't let you escape before uh, we ask you t- the two most important questions of the day that we ask all of our guests here at Beethoven Walks into a Bar. What is your drink of choice, Caroline? Do you have a favorite cocktail or beer or wine, or what do you like to drink when you're unwinding after a concert?
3: When I'm when I'm on the road, I'm usually a, I'm a little homesick, and I want something that is just simple and strong, and full of flavor, and that is a Manhattan. Yes,
1: yeah. that's my drink. Yeah, <laughs> you win. I love a Manhattan.
3: We need to start keeping track of how
0: many uh, whose favorite drink we is a Manhattan. This should
1: be a game, a running game. <laughs>
0: ding
3: ding ding.
1: Do you oh, like yes. your Manhattans? Do you like them sweet or dry?
3: um a dry i'd go with dry
1: yeah, yeah. me too yeah Good. luxardo cherries
3: definitely a real the oh, real yeah. one if it's not the real if it's not the real Luxor cherry, out oh, yeah no cherry but
1: if you, it's got the real one. you got it you okay. got it okay all right <laughs> and if you were enjoying a manhattan with me and beethoven in a bar let's say uh what would you ask beethoven if you could ask him any questions
3: Oh my god! I just so I was reading through this outline and I I got to the favorite drink and I didn't read the second part, which is what would you ask me to. Do?
1: <laughs> so I'm not. Well, I'm putting you on the spot right now. Oh my
3: god! I'm not prepared.
0: I'll tell you what. Oh my how god! How about this?
1: How about you think about it and we're gonna do our recommended listening for the week. Okay, And great. by the time it comes it. to you, maybe you'll have a good answer for it. Okay, thanks. No problem.
2: Well, uh, you know we always finish up this way, and. Uh, I couldn't help but uh, recommend this wonderful piece of Caroline's, which I actually first heard uh, just a few months ago. She wrote it for a quartet called the Brooklyn Rider Quartet, who are uh, four terrific guys that I know a little bit and have worked with, and they're just the most wonderful and versatile uh, musicians. One of their players is a composer as well, but they Recently, put out uh, this new recording, and it includes Caroline Shaw's uh, piece called Schisma. And we have Caroline here to say something about it, so I I hope you will. Um, but it's it's inspired by uh, a movement uh, from a Beethoven quartet, actually, this Opus One Thirty Two, and it is just an incredible piece of music, really, really about healing, right? About about comfort.
3: Yeah, it's um. This was written. A few years ago, and uh, the the Brooklyn Writers Project for the for this album and for these commissions was um, thinking about the music of of comfort and specifically referencing the Beethoven Heilige Danka Song that movement from 132. So this is a piece that um, is uh, definitely it references the the Syrian refugee crisis in a very oblique way and. Um, like a lot of my music, but maybe this one in particular, has a mix of um, something that is calm and open, and then these moments of incredible tension and sometimes literal tension with the bow and the strings,
2: yeah, yeah, I, one of the things that I find so incredible about it, especially if you get to hear uh, a quartet play it live, it's so um it's so intimate, I think it draws it draws the listener in so intensely uh, and it's it's just incredible. so go listen to that on uh, Spotify, or I'm sure it's elsewhere, and unfortunately uh, you can't hear it in person immediately, but I hope sometime soon you'll be able to hear it in person.
1: I'd like to recommend, of course, Caroline's uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning piece, Partita for Eight Voices. There are several recordings out there, um, so make sure you check out that piece. I think it's truly uh, one of the most incredible pieces written for voices, and um, all those experimental and daring and different sounds that we talked about earlier and in a way like caroline said it's always very expressive and i was blown away the first time i heard that piece and i've listened to it many times since and i still think it's without a doubt one of the greatest things ever written for voices so definitely check that out and also i'd like to recommend that you check out room full of teeth's npr tiny desk concert these are this is some (laughs) of my uh, favorite performances by any artist and i feel like you really get a sense of an an artist's true ability when they're in that kind of a setting. And Roomful of Teeth's performance on NPR Tiny Desk concert was amazing. So definitely check that out as well.
0: So I'm recommending, um, I wanted to kind of highlight um, Caroline's diversity and just style. Um, So I was very interested to find out that you uh, co-produced and uh, did a remix of Kanye West's Say You Will. Um, which I, you know, I think is just so cool that, that it's kind of barrier breaking in this whole idea of classical music and and what we do. And um, combining that with hip hop, I think is a really neat idea. Um, so I've, I've included a link to that below. Um, but can you talk a little bit just about what that process was like, and how you got involved in that? And if you've, experimented anymore with um going that app av- like that hip-hop crossover avenue
3: oh sure we a um about five years ago room full of teeth we performed partita in la and and kanye came to the show because there was a i think it was a big philip glass double piano concerto premiere mm. on the second half so i met him um at intermission and a few months later he was working on this big live concert um i actually didn't know him very well i didn't Mm -hmm. i i uh um but i when i met him he was just sort of this shy kind of awkward artist backstage who was working on a video game about his mother (laughs) so um (laughs) uh and then there's anyway there's this song say you will which is the first track of 808s and heartbreak an album from 2008 i think and i i fell in love with the song and the he his producer had asked me to kind of make an orchestra like arrangements so we'll have an orchestra if you want to do something with these songs and I thought I don't really want to just like you know classical music is not one thing you know this whole world is many different things and there are many different ways of approaching something so I made a version of this with mostly my voice and a little violin that is kind of um, not something I would do in the classical music world and not something I would necessarily do in the hip-hop world but um, and since then we've collaborated on some different things we've uh, have some political differences so i've stepped back but um uh it's been a really um you know i like learning from from everyone and um figuring out different ways of making sound together yeah yeah that's mm.
1: awesome all right well we just made you talk about these pieces so you probably <laughs> even had time to think about our question what would I you don't... ask Beethoven? but did you think of anything
3: i did well, i thought i was going to have more <laughs> okay. time i thought you guys were going to talk and then i had to. so I, th- I thought you know the 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 first thing i'd really want to know for real is just like, what you know, what would you be if you weren't a, a musician or composer? And I kind of wonder what he would say. Like, I, hmm. my sense is maybe he would want to be in politics, but, um, hmm. um, and then I would want to ask him that if he was alive today, I feel like maybe he would be a filmmaker. And then, but the real, the kind of, you know, easy question really to ask would be, um, ribs or pulled pork? And I don't, I think he's a, <laughs> I'm going to guess he's a ribs guy. But uh, um, pulled, pulled pork for me.
1: Nice, <laughs> yeah, nice. Uh, bringing, a, bringing it all back to barbecue. Bring I love it, it, bring
3: it back to barbecue. I
1: it's wonder what, what Beethoven would ask Caroline Shaw. That would be cool because I'm I know that if he were alive today, he would greatly admire your work, like we all do. And um,
3: that's very kind to say.
1: <laughs> no, it's true. It's it's so true. And we really want to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us today. It's been really fascinating talking with you and getting to know you better. And we hope that everyone will check out your fantastic music. Like I said, uh, you're such a versatile artist, and there's so much out there that people can hear and experience for the first time. And they will probably look at music completely differently once they hear some of your great work. So... Um, thank you for taking your time, uh, to join us Ah, today. We appreciate it. Thanks
3: so much for having me. It's really great to talk with you
0: all today. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Caroline.
0: Before we get going, is there anything that you wanted to recommend listening wise? Anything you want people to, to, Ah. uh, listen to of yours or any, anything that you've listened to lately that you think others might enjoy?
3: There's a, there's a, a young composer that I know who's from Kansas city, actually, who, um, Used to be a student of mine she has a string quartet called middle ground and her name is shelly washington um, and i think you can probably find her online you can find a recording of that but she um, has written her own words she's a she's a really great composer in person shelly washington kansas City. awesome cool yeah cool. you, heard, you cool. heard it here
0: <laughs> very cool well this podcast is called beethoven walks into a bar which means that we have to talk a bit about the big man himself lvb every so often so next week, we will discuss his epic Ninth Symphony and chat with our good friend and president of the Kansas City Symphony Chorus, Kim Gear. That's next time on Beethoven Walks Into a Bar.